1: planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton.
2: Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'll be your host today. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will be back next week. Now on to today. Are you applying to colleges but lost on how to submit your SAT or ACT scores? Not sure which scores to submit? We'll be covering that in our second segment today. Then, for our last segment, we'll be addressing the big changes recently announced by President Obama that are coming to the free application for federal student aid for the year 2017-2018. Change is scary, but is this a good change? We'll find out. But first, now that you've submitted your applications, are you thinking about scheduling those interviews, or are you a junior who might be visiting colleges this spring and thinking about interviewing then? I'll be discussing college interviews, what to expect, and how to prepare with my guest Kara Courtois, a college coach, education consultant, and former admissions officer at Barnard College. Welcome, Kara.
0: Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me.
2: Oh, thanks so much for coming on. Um,
0: All right, let's go ahead and just
2: sort of dive right in. Um, I think that everybody talks about interviews, but let's get into, let's talk about what purpose an interview serves. Like how do colleges, college admission offices use interviews?
0: Great question. I think the reality is it really depends on the school. And I always encourage students when they're booking interviews to read on the website, there's usually some details about what the college might be wanting to get from the student in an interview, and some will be evaluative, you know, and they're really trying to get a sense of, you know, who is the person behind this application so that when we're in an admissions committee, we're advocating and and looking for that overall fit, which is true of a non-evaluative interview as well but these evaluative ones have a little bit more impact. And I always think of, say, like a Wake Forest when I think of that, who seems to really try to get students to interview. And the students I've um, experienced interviewing there find that they're kind of more challenging questions sometimes that are being asked. So I think just generally speaking, um, you know, most colleges are just trying to see if you're a fit, how you'll add to the overall campus environment,
2: Mm -hmm. um, and who's the person behind the application. Mm -hmm. I always thought that um, enthusiasm was important as well. I mean, I remember some of the interviews where, when I was at University of Chicago, there were always a billion students who wanted to interview, and we we couldn't even accommodate them all. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd start out the interview by saying, why do you want to uh, what what makes you interested in the University of Chicago? And the student might say, most of the time students were great, but every once in a while I'd have a student who said, "Oh, my college counselor said I should check it out. I don't <laughs> I don't really know." My dad went you, here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I I kind of thought, you know, there's a lot of students who really want to be talking to me, so <laughs> right next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's one of the tips also that I always say to students is you know keep that enthusiasm up. Now. Um, can you tell me, do most colleges actually interview at this point?
0: It's a great question. No, I would say that's a piece that we've seen shift. I've, I've seen shift quite a bit in my time um, since doing college admissions. And I, I would say, fair to say that it's more the small liberal arts schools. Um, generally speaking, if they want an interview, it would be more that size campus, you know, fewer than 5,000 students. Um, mm-hmm. And then I've seen certainly some honors programs where they might ask a student or fly someone in to do an interview or more likely do a Skype interview these days.
2: Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is that the smaller colleges and the, these honors programs might be more inclined to interview?
0: I, I mean, I always found, so at Barnard, for instance, I mean, we had 540 students usually in the the first year class. And so we'd admit, maybe a, a little over a 1,000 students to make up that class. And so that's a tiny group, and you have so many highly qualified candidates that, you know, you really are seeding a class very specifically. And in many ways, it's not at all that an interview would be able... You'd never be able to keep track of, you know, do we have enough leaders? Do we have, you know, enough English majors? You know, it's not really about that, but it's it's just being able to feed into, you know, the communal atmosphere. Is this a person who will play well with others, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. will be a good um, person in the dormitory and on the campus, and you aren't representing your school. So, at a smaller school, it's a little bit easier to do that, um, and I think it can really help a student who's very personable that maybe, you know, maybe they're not a straight-A student applying to a school that really requires that or can often get that but is so vivacious and just so impressive um, personally that, you know, it's not going to change the grades, as I always remind students, and that it often isn't going to get you in, but it can provide clarity for those smaller schools that can feed a class.
2: Mm-hmm. I know that when I worked at Reed, if we want to talk about small schools, even smaller than Barnard, and let's face it, a very particular kind of environment, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really just wanted to make sure that the students I was interviewing sort of knew something about Reed, um, knew that we we kind of fulfilled a certain niche. We were a little more, we were maybe a lot more intellectual than your <laughs> typical college, that our students yeah. were maybe a little eccentric. And that even if they themselves didn't present themselves as eccentric, that they were excited about that kind of an environment. Yeah. So. Yep.
0: My favorite interview at Barnard was when I said, so, you know, what makes you interested in attending a women's college? (laughs) Barnard's a women's college. And the student said, oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Oh, my God.
2: (laughs) Oops. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, you need to inform yourself. yeah. yeah exactly. exactly. okay, yeah, so do your research students right. <laughs> that's exactly. something that should be should really be underlined here. so all right, well let's let's um, we can come back to this if we want to, but let's cover some of the nuts and bolts. Let's start out with how do you book interviews? Uh, what, where do you start if you want to book an interview?:
0: Sure, I mean, definitely uh, right online, most schools will you don't even have to pick up a phone anymore and you can just schedule an interview right on their website, or sometimes you'll have an account like MIT has an account and you have to set it up. I think the key thing is to check early on, whether it's spring of junior year when you're formulating your list or in the summer, does your school even offer an interview? And if they do, do I have to book it or am I contacted by an alum from the from the college after I've applied? I think that's mm-hmm. the big thing to be aware of. Mm-hmm.
2: And and that kind of feeds into this next question, which is when do you book them? You know, what, uh, like, do you think, you know, juniors should book interviews when they're on their spring break trip? Or do you think they should maybe wait till the summer or the fall? You know, how does that play in if you're applying early decision or early action to a school? So what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really about can, when can you do it and do they ask you to be on campus, which is really the preferred I would say, offering for most colleges if they offer that at all. So, you know, figuring out what you can accommodate would probably be key. I always find, you know, summer after junior year into fall of senior year, when you're really in it, you know, you are writing applications and you're really narrowing down where you want to apply. And so, and you're, you know, answering the questions of why you want to attend there in writing oftentimes so you're more clear. So you'll probably interview better. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just a little bit more mature. You know, mm-hmm. having taught high school, I will say, you know, fall of senior year is actually hugely different from spring of junior year as far as maturity and awareness, self-awareness. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So
2: I yeah. I actually, every time I interviewed, it was very noticeable when I started interviewing juniors. And, um, yeah. you know, there it, it was just such, you're just not going to compare as strongly as a junior in uh, interviewing in spring when we're maybe s- we've just stopped talking to seniors or yeah, we're still absolutely. talking to transfers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Now what I want to give a plug for the alumni interviews, by the way, I, in general, I completely agree. I think interviewing on campus could be great. Um, but I will say that when I was working at, you know, a very busy college, the interview, I had 20 minutes. You know, and as much as I liked a student, it was like, okay, that's great. Okay, you have to go now because I have to interview the next (laughs) student. Whereas our alumni would sometimes interview, they would have coffee with a student for two hours and write these amazing uh, interview reports that were so thorough. So I do like to put in a plug. Sometimes those alumni interviews can be great. I do want to, you know, underline that.
0: Absolutely. And I also, what I love about them is that I've seen students be more thoughtful about where they ultimately want to attend, you know, especially if they are not doing a binding commitment somewhere and they're weighing their choices, you know, before Mm -hmm. May 1st of senior year. that sometimes those alumni interviews can help them, you know, feel more connected to the school, you know, that if they resonated more or learned a lot more about the school and the enthusiasm from the alumni. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, good.
0: Now, what about,
2: um, what if a student doesn't think that he'll be a strong interviewee? Like, what if he's like, "Uh, not my interpersonal skills, not my strength? What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that?
0: Well, if it's not required, then I would say to the student, then don't do it. You know, you have the rest of your life to prepare for interviews and allow yourself to grow in college, and you will have interviews, you know, someday. But for now, you know, perhaps you present better in writing, and if it's not required, then you know, then mm-hmm. it's not going to add to your application. Therefore, I wouldn't recommend that they do it. Mm-hmm. If it is required, then you know, then you want to pull in any family members and whatever preparation you can do. Uh, read our blog post, <laughs> you know, that yeah. <laughs> talks about um, you know interview tips, and just really get some teachers and family friends who might be able to practice, you know, some questions so you're not you know, caught off guard and you're you're feeling comfortable with who you are and what you'd say.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I actually think there's often students might know someone, even if their teachers can't help, they might know someone who does alumni interviews for a school mm-hmm. and, who, and can help them practice. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, now should a student who's nervous about interviewing, should they interview at a school that they're not really planning on applying to, that they don't really care about? As practice. I,
0: oh my gosh, I would never recommend that. You know, <laughs> really, I just—I I think most importantly, it just—what's the—what are you going to gain from it, really? You know, uh, I think, you know, that could have been that situation I shared before about the student who didn't know it was an all-female institution. Maybe mm-hmm. she was using us, you know, as a precursor. I would definitely encourage a student, you know, to not necessarily interview at their most competitive choice college first. Mm -hmm. Definitely choose something that seems like a safer option, Mm -hmm. but one that you intend to apply to, and and for good reason, that you're a good match for them. But Mm -hmm. absolutely not. Don't practice somewhere that you have no intention of going to. Exactly. And I think,
2: I mean, in in all honesty, it feels kind of fundamentally dishonest to me. It's not going to be a good interview if you can't express enthusiasm. So, and as someone who conducted interviews, I really didn't want to talk to someone who wasn't excited about the school. So... absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, interview at your safeties, go ahead and start with those. Even if it's, you know, you don't have to lie and say it's your top choice, but you can say I've researched a lot of schools and you guys are on my list, you know, and this is what I like about you. So, Uh uh, all right, good. I completely agree, but I asked the question because I get asked that a lot. And I just think we want to underline, you know, treat the college admissions officers like you would treat a friend and don't waste their time. So, um, yeah. Um, Let's see. What are some common questions Um, that you might be asked on an interview? We've already kind of touched on, you know, why are you interested in this school? Do you think, I mean, that's always where I started. Do you think that's a pretty common question? And and what are some others?
0: That's how I always started, you know, unless there was a general, you know, icebreaker. But other than that, you know, oftentimes I do encourage students to bring in a copy of their resume, um, you know, or some semblance of, you know, listing activities that they've been committed to, sports, volunteer work, whatever, Because some interviewers will take a quick look at that and try and derive their questions a little bit from what's in front of them to generate the conversation. And -hmm. then others will put it down. But I always think it's helpful and I think it makes a student more comfortable when they have a resume that they can hand over. And some of the questions I would generate from that immediately is, you know, looking at the top activities that they maybe have been invested to, you know, tell me more about you know, this uh, volunteer project that you led? Or um, can you, you know, do you plan to play soccer, you know, in college? If so, have you been in touch with the coaches here? Or, you know, just any of those uh, basic tidbits. And then, I mean, I always found in the interviews I conducted and and many other students have, you know, come back to tell me that they have definitely had a lot of talk about how are you going to contribute to our campus community? And then quite a bit about academics. You know, where Mm -hmm. are your strengths? What are some challenges that you've been presented with thus far, you know, Mm -hmm. in high school? Mm -hmm. Um, How do others describe you? Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always been surprised, although maybe this hasn't been as recent, but um, when some students I'll say, so tell me about someone you admire, um, whether you know them or someone you've read about. And many students would really draw a blank you know, and dance around that. And that's okay. And I think that's a good interview, you know, tool to have is what do you do if you do draw a blank? You know, do you panic and want to run out the door? You know, uh, do you cry? I only had that once (laughs) when I was interviewing. I don't think I was a scary one, you know, interviewer either. But, Mm -hmm. um, or do you say, you know what, can we come back to that? So, you know, sort of trying to predict, maybe I won't know all the questions, Because, you know, it's not about memorizing parts of my personality. It's really just about, you know, comfortably having a conversation with someone. So Mm -hmm. being prepared for not always knowing an answer hmm.
2: Yeah, actually, I would say, um, you know, sometimes you do get those very nervous students and the ones who even just would tell me, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous and I'm, I'm drawing a yeah. blank on that question right now. I've never thought about that. That was much, much better to me than students who would kind of ramble and, and sort of not be able to get to the point because they were so yeah. nervous. So yeah. own it. Just go ahead and say, I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous. Could we come back to that? Or or even sometimes they would say, can I take a moment? I want to think about that for a moment. I loved that. I thought that
0: was great. Me too. So mature. I could never have done it at that age.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I thought it was, I was very impressed with that. So don't, no worries about admitting that you're nervous. Um, Just this Mm -hmm. is to the students out there. We all know that you're 17. You're not expected to seem like you're coming from a fortune for, to interview at a fortune 500 company. So you don't need to worry about that. And so speaking of that, in the sort of next, you know, two minutes that we have, um, what should students wear? I mean, do they need to dress up fully like it's a job interview? I mean, what's sort of a good rule to to think about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think there's different thoughts on this, but I think most importantly is a student looks like they made a little bit of an effort to perhaps look, you know, clean and neat and, you know, to make a positive impression. So for some students, that's you know, for males, maybe khaki pants and a nice sweater or a, you know, a nice, uh, Oxford shirt. For other students, it could be a blazer and for, you know, women could be nice slacks or a skirt depending on what they're comfortable with. So I think, I always think, you know, what you would wear to dinner with your grandparents is, you know, one idea to go with, not what you'd wear to prom and mm-hmm. probably not what you'd eventually wear to a job interview. Mm -hmm. but something that you're just not going to twitch, you know, definitely things you won't tug on and, you know, sleeves that are too long that you'll pull on because you just pulled the tags off of something. Right. Um, (laughs)
2: Exactly. I always think, too, um, it is important to note that there can be regional differences, too. I mean, when I worked at Reed, that was in Portland, Oregon. It was much more casual. We didn't think twice about a student wearing jeans as long as they mm-hmm. were sort of neat and presentable. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but I know that a colleague of ours who worked at Yale said that he really expected khakis and didn't like to see jeans. So it's that to me, that seemed like a regional difference as much as, you know, anything yeah. else.
0: Yep, agreed. Yep, completely agreed.
2: Okay, um, so I think that's it. I think that we're actually out of time. Kara, I really appreciate this. It's been great chatting with you. Um, Okay, everyone, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be talking about the ins and outs of submitting your SAT or ACT scores.
4: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
0: Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before the break, our next segment is regarding the complexities of submitting SAT and ACT scores to colleges, something I personally find confusing, even though I've been working in this field for over 20 years. So do not feel bad if you find it confusing. Luckily, here to help us is Elise Krantz, a former admissions officer with Bennington and Barnard College and an educational consultant with College Coach. Welcome, Elise. How are you doing today? I'm well. Good, good. All right, so let's let's just kind of dig right in. I'm going to assume that all of our listeners know what the SAT and the ACT are. I think, you know, that's probably pretty clear. So, let's just start with what is the easiest and the fastest way to make sure that the scores get to the colleges.
3: Okay.
0: Well, most
3: students need to be aware that colleges want official score reports as part of the applications. Sometimes students self-report their test scores on their applications, or sometimes the high school includes test scores on the transcript. But in order for it to be official, it needs to come directly from the testing agency. So if you're taking the SAT, that's going to come from the College Board. And if you're taking the ACT, that's coming from the ACT organization. Now, Although I don't necessarily recommend this way, the absolute fastest way for colleges to get your SAT or ACT scores is to utilize the free score reporting option that is available to students at the time of registration. So when you're logging on to the College Board or ACT website and you say, I'm ready to take the exam, I want to register for this particular sitting, you have the option at that time to choose up to four colleges who will receive your scores as soon as they become available. And it's actually the case that the scores are sent usually a day in advance to those colleges before the student or the high school actually receives those scores. So that is the absolute fastest way. And it does take a couple of weeks after the administration of the exam for those scores to become available
2: mm mm-hmm. well what's the what's the downside of doing it that way because you said you wouldn't necessarily recommend this
3: right so it's not for everybody to take advantage for those four free score reports. Um, the downside is, is that you don't have the option of reviewing those scores before you release them to colleges. Let's say you're, it's your first time taking the SAT or the ACT and you're a little nervous about how you did. You may not want to automatically send those scores until you've had a chance to review them and feel comfortable that, yes, those are scores you would ultimately like to submit. For students who are in a situation where, financially, they would like to take advantage of those four free tests, you know, it's, you have to balance that a little bit. But I think for many students, uh, they would choose perhaps to wait and, and look at those scores before they release them to colleges.
2: Mm-hmm. Certainly for a spring score, certainly especially for March and June, um, you know, you've got plenty of time to send those off to the colleges. So, Absolutely. Great point. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there other methods of sending scores?
3: So, if you don't utilize those four free score choice options in the beginning, um, you can wait until you get your official scores, and then you can log on to the College Board website or the ACT website, and then request your scores at that time. Uh, it does the timing is always tricky, and there have been so many issues recently with the September ACT and the October. SAT, there have been serious delays. I'm talking like months of delays when colleges and students even should have received their full score report and they still weren't available. So this is a, this is a bit unusual what's happening this fall. Uh, but generally speaking, after a student logs on to the College Board website and, or the ACT website and they are requesting that scores be sent The party line is that it takes one to two weeks of processing time uh, for those scores to be electronically sent to colleges, and then it takes the colleges themselves maybe seven to ten business days to actually make sure those scores get inputted into the student's file. But I do find that for most students that I've worked with, within about a week, assuming that they weren't part of this crazy September ACT or October SAT issue, usually within a week. For colleges that receive the scores electronically, it's the scores arrive.
2: Okay, well, that's good news. But let's talk about all the scores being delayed. I mean, I've been hearing reports of that as well. Um, I mean, do you know, you know, what, what should students do to try and expedite their scores in this situation? Would it help if they called the college board? I mean, what, what might help?
3: Okay, so with the ACT, the delay on their end was the writing section of the score, the essay portion, was delayed and students weren't able to get their full report up until a few weeks ago. And for the October SAT administration, what happened was that the College Board changed the way that they report their scores electronically and they were having a hard time gathering that information and then sending it in the correct format to colleges. So what colleges have been encouraging students to do, um, and I think it's a great idea, and this is something that I used to recommend to students when I worked at Barnard, um, when they had scores that they wanted immediately sent if they took them in the fall of their senior year, is that the student can take a screenshot of their, their report that was available to them, even if it's not the complete report, as, as long as they have, for example, the composite score for the ACT Without the writing section, that's okay. But take that screenshot and email it directly to the admissions office with a little note saying that there is a delay with the reporting. Please accept this as a placeholder until the official scores arrive.
2: Mm-hmm. So so you don't think it's enough um, if students self-report their scores on their common application? Uh, you don't think that's well, going to help?
3: Well, it's certainly I think it, it helps to indicate on the application that the student took that exam, let's say that October SAT, so that colleges know it was there, it was taken, and they'll see those self-reported scores. Um, And I think that will satisfy many colleges. But if, for whatever reason, a student doesn't feel comfortable self-reporting their scores on the common application, it would be a good idea to let colleges know that the test was taken, scores are coming, there's just a bit of a delay. And colleges really have been good about uh, letting students know on their websites uh, that early decision and early action applications will likely still be considered complete. It's not a problem if the official test score reports come a little bit late.
2: Mm-hmm. So that screenshot thing is really, a, a, I think, key there. So as soon as the students find out, they can at least email them to the colleges. hmm Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, And uh, do you, and then you said that most colleges are putting it on their website. They've got a particular they have a kind of an explanation of, of how college of how the students should do, go about doing that, who they should email it to, that sort of thing.
3: Right. Um, I think it was I was on the phone yesterday with Cornell, and before you even were able to speak to somebody, they had a message playing that uh, students who were applying early decision shouldn't worry about the impact of the delayed scores. You know, I don't think they necessarily recommended the screenshot method in that, that message that I heard when I was waiting to speak to an admissions officer there, um, but some colleges are putting it out there that students can go about that method, um, but it's, even though it's a tremendously stressful time for students worrying that their application will not be considered complete, um, in most instances, colleges will have flexibility, to let the scores come in, and it shouldn't hurt the students' chances.
2: Mm-hmm. That's good. I want to propose another solution, too, because I used to, when I, I was a high school counselor, uh, mind you, I was at a small private school, so I had a really nice, low caseload of only 40 students, but if they needed to send their scores in quickly, I would sometimes do it for them, because I could look up the scores with them on my computer, and then I was sort of the one saying to the colleges, this is their scores. So, um, so that's, that's sort of another option if you attend a school where you actually do have access to your counselor. So I know some high school counselors are might be listening to this thinking, thanks so much for that. I've got 500 kids (laughs) in my caseload. So I just want to say for those, if you're unfortunately in that high school, probably just take the screenshot. But some of you might be at these smaller schools. And then I think that you should look at your counselor as someone who's hopefully an advocate in this particular situation and can really help you out.
3: Um, right. I remember when I was at Barnard, we used to get faxes right around early decision and regular decision deadline time with students self-reported, like their own score report. Not the official report, but it would be sent in, faxed in by the guidance office, and we added it to the file as just a placeholder until the official score report arrived. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Good, good. So what what do you think is the latest that you can send your scores? I mean, you kind of... Um, you know, we, we sort of had, you gave some kind of general guidelines, but let's say we're already past the November 1 score or the November 1 deadline. What's the latest you can send, a student can send their score and have them arrive for November 15th or maybe January 1st? Like, what do you think are their hard and fast deadlines by which, you know, this is assuming that a student has their scores um, in front of them. So maybe this is like a June score.
3: I would say to be on the absolute safest side, you'd want to give yourself a two-week cushion before the the deadline of the application. Although many colleges are tremendously flexible. They don't want to turn a student's application away. They want to be able to count that application as part of their numbers. And so even if it arrives a little bit after the deadline, it's usually not an issue. But for students who want to be sure that all of their materials, the application, all of the supplementary materials, are in the office by the official deadline, I think two weeks is is a good cushion.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, that seems like a good idea. Frankly, for my students, what I've said is just send them now. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> e- even for the students who are applying, you know, early decision to a school, and they're even maybe waiting to submit those applications, given what Craziness is occurring right now, what disorganization or whatever you want to call it, I could think of a very bad word that I can't say on the radio, um, <laughs> at College Board and ACT. It just seems to me that students should probably just send them right away just so that they know that the scores will arrive on time. Um, oh, sure. So. Once,
3: once you have your college list and once you have your scores, you don't have to wait to submit your application. You don't have to wait until the deadline. You can send them as soon as they're available and you know those schools you're applying to. I know sometimes students worry that they can't submit their scores until their actual application is in the office. That's simply not true. And actually, when I called the college board a couple days ago, the very nice gentleman who tried to answer my many questions about sending scores and rushed score reports and all of that, he gave me the incorrect advice not to send your scores before the application arrives because they would have a hard time matching it to your file. That's certainly not the case. So students really can send it as soon as it's ready to be sent.
2: Yeah, that is something. It's such a persistent myth. And I say, how do you think the colleges can read any files? My material is coming... All the time from all different sources, so mm-hmm. you do not need to wait until your file, your application is in there, and that that goes for teacher recommendations and all kinds of other material. So absolutely, uh, yeah. All right, so let's let's get into something that I think is even a little bit more complicated. Um, although it's it's been around a little longer, so maybe people are figuring it out. But what is score choice? You know, what happens if students? Um, does, what is score, let's start with just that. What is score choice? What does it mean when colleges talk about score choice?
3: Okay. So score choice is a policy through the college board. It is not something imposed by colleges. It is not something that, um, all colleges utilize. It is a college board SAT only phenomenon. And what it means is that when students take the SAT multiple times, they have the option to withhold some of their scores when they're sending their score report to colleges. So when a student logs on to the College Board website and is ready to send their scores, they will be given the option of selecting or deselecting an entire test date. So, for example, if a student took the SATs in March and May and June, but their May score was really horrendous, they have the option of deselecting May and just sending March and June. Mm-hmm. So that's the essence of what score choice is.
2: Okay. And doesn't ACT do the same thing too? I mean, you said the SAT, but I think, doesn't ACT allow you to choose?
3: Well, the ACT is a little different actually, because the score reports that come out of the ACT, it's only one administration at a time. So if you've taken the ACT in June and then you took it again in September and you want to send just June, you're you're only paying for June. There's no like selecting or deselecting, if you want mm-hmm. to send September and June, you have to pay twice the fee because you're sending two score reports. So it's oh. not so much of an issue for ACT because you have complete control over what you send with mm-hmm. the ACT, and that's always been the case.
2: Okay, so they didn't make a change, whereas the College Board, um, the, with SAT score choice, was a change.
3: Right, because all of the, all of the scores in a student's, SAT history appear on the same sheet of paper or the same digital record, but ACT, they're all separate records.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, see, this is helpful. I've learned something new. That is very <laughs> helpful. Thanks, Ali. So, um, all right. So what happens, so what I've heard or what, what I know to be the case is that not all colleges allow score choice. What do you think about that? Do, you, do most colleges want you to submit all your scores? Do most colleges sort of allow you to pick and choose? Uh, What's your sense of that?
3: It really varies, and you can't come up with a hard and fast rule for schools that accept score choice and schools that don't accept score choice. You never know until you literally go onto the school's web page, and you look under the admissions section under testing requirements, and usually there will be some kind of language about score choice or we want, or we strongly encourage, or we require that students submit all of their scores. Um, I, I know it can be very nerve-wracking for a student uh, being told that they must submit all of their scores. If you've taken the SAT three, maybe four times, you might not want to show them your worst scores, and I get that. But the reason that colleges want to see all of your scores is because sometimes students don't always make the right decisions of what they consider to be the highest scores, and so colleges, by having all of the information available to them, electronically, it's, their best scores will just pop up on their, on their application. And most instances, colleges don't even see the bad scores. They only see the top scores that were kind of selected by their application system to show on your file so mm-hmm. it's really not going to hurt you in the process. If anything, it will help you because maybe you you missed something when you were, you know, do, trying to do score choice on your own.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're unsure at all, um, it sounds like you should really submit all your scores. Like if one is, um, maybe if one is dramatically worse and the college allows you to just submit your top scores, then that's fine. But. You know, if one section is better on one in in uh, one sitting, and uh, like the critical reading section is better in another, and then the math is better in another, then you should just really submit all of them.
3: I yeah, that generally is the recommendation that we would make it because colleges read electronically now, most colleges, and because. The information from the College Board for most colleges is sent electronically. It's not as though colleges are flipping through a paper folder and they're seeing actual numbers of all of your score reports. That's just not the way it works anymore. And so most of the times it's just your best critical reading and your best math and your best writing although that will soon be going away soon for a lot of students because <laughs> it's not required anymore with the changes coming up although i'm sure that's a topic for another radio show um, mm-hmm. but it's it's really just the best scores that will be visible to admissions officers and in some cases they can dig into your history to find you know your multiple sittings and they can see all of that but in a in a normal, traditional read of an application file. They're just going to focus on, on those best scores that were, that were shown.
2: Okay. All right. Great. Listen, Elise, thank you. This has been very, very helpful. Um, You're welcome. Okay. So everyone, we're going to take another short break, but then we'll be covering the big changes to the FAFSA that have been announced recently. Thanks so much.
4: your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
1: You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to getting in a college coach conversation to reach elizabeth heaton or her guest today please call in to one 866 472 that's one 866 472 or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com now back to the show
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back for our third and final segment. While not, not all of you will be applying for financial aid, you might still want to listen to Shannon Vasconcelos, college finance expert, who will be here to tell us if this change that I've been referring to might be a good thing, even though change is scary. All right. Welcome, Shannon.
5: Hi, Sally. How are you doing? I'm good,
2: thanks. How are you doing today?
5: I'm fabulous. Thank you.
2: Good, good. So let's start with the basics, because these... All these different things are confusing. So, what is the FAFSA or federal applicate or uh, free application? Excuse me, free application for federal student aid. What is it?
5: Yeah, so that is the big government financial aid application. Um, it is the form that every single college, at least in the U.S., requires you to fill out to apply for financial aid. Uh, it asks information about you know what your family's income is, what you've got in terms of money in the bank, how big your family is, that kind of thing, so that the colleges can get at least a basic grasp of your family's financial circumstances so that they can determine how quote-unquote needy you are uh, and figure out how much financial aid you're eligible for. So it's the big form that's used to determine... Um need based financial aid eligibility is generally not used for merit scholarships, but need-based financial aid eligibility at um at just about every college in the United States.
2: mm-hmm, okay, all right, great so that's that's very helpful. So I know it's been in the news a lot in the last few weeks um and that there there are some big changes coming so can you can you explain those changes?
5: Yeah, so this was really, really big news in the financial aid world. It, it may not be very exciting to the outside <laughs> world, but, but to us financial aid counselors, this is like the biggest thing since sliced bread. So the <laughs> the big change that, um, that happened is the, the Obama administration issued this executive order that has changed the year of income that you report on the FAFSA. So When you fill out the FAFSA, it asks you to report one year's worth of income. Um, Historically, that year of income has been what they call your prior year income. Um, So, you know, if you were going to start college in 2016, they were looking at the family's 2015 income, the year that kind of the last year that wraps up before you're applying to college. That's the way it always has been. The change that just occurred is they're changing that so that they're going to uh, instead of the prior year income, they're going to ask for what they're awkwardly referring to as your prior, prior year income. So basically <laughs> what that means is they're going to look two years back. Um, so for folks uh, starting college in 2017, they're not looking at 2016 anymore. They're going to look at 2015 instead. They're going to look at your income two years back. Um, that's the big change that occurred, and kind of going along with that, um, historically, again, uh, the FAFSA has been made available on January 1st of each year um, because they basically needed to wait for that prior year to wrap up so you could report your income for the prior year. Since they're going to be looking two years back now, they don't have to wait so long. They don't have to um, make folks wait to fill out the FAFSA. So they're now going to start making it available in October of each year to sort of align it more with the rest of the college admissions process.
2: Okay. All right. So are these changes going to affect current high school seniors who are right now in the midst of the application process?
5: No, um, at, least, at least not right now. It's not going to affect this year's uh, financial aid applications. Folks working on the process right now, current high school seniors, this change goes into effect for the next academic year, for the 2017-18 school year. So for kids applying to college um, for the 16-17 school year, it's based on the old way of doing things. So again, the FAFSA is not going to become available until January, and they're going to ask about your one prior year's income. So they're going to ask about, uh, for high school seniors now, they're going to ask about your 2015 income, this, this current year. Um, eventually, uh, this change will kind of catch up with everybody because you do have to reapply for financial aid each year that year for each year that you're going to be enrolled in college. So for current high school seniors, this year it's based on your prior year income, 2015. For your mm-hmm. sophomore year uh, financial aid application, it, that's when prior prior year kicks into effect, the 2017-18 school year. Um, So for current high school seniors, next year's aid application, once they're already in college, they're going to start looking back two years. So it's actually going to be 2015 again that they're going to look at. So we're kind of sitting right smack dab in the middle of kind of a pretty important year in the financial aid world um, because for the first time ever, this one year is going to be used to determine financial aid eligibility for two separate academic years.
2: Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so not the year to get to win the lottery, basically. Exactly Is what you're, right. is what you're saying. So, <laughs> yes. although hopefully, if you did win the lottery, it's a really good thing to do is to pay for college. I think actually. Exactly, so,
5: it's a good use <laughs> of the funds because you're not getting financially. <laughs> exactly,
2: exactly. <laughs> All right. So, um, what what are the upsides of the change? Like, what is this going to help? Families yeah. and students?
5: Yeah, so overall, this is a really, really good change that people in the financial aid world have been kind of advocating for for a while. Um, so it, really, this was in response to you know, criticism of the FAFSA and really the whole financial aid process as being kind of too complicated. Um, and in fact, the FAFSA form itself is actually not very complicated. What makes it complicated is the timing because the way things have worked up until now is they make you you essentially have to apply for financial aid in January or February of your senior year in high school um, to meet the college's financial aid application deadlines. They ask about your 2000 your, the prior year's income, um, and they ask for line items right off of your tax return. If you had your taxes done, it's pretty easy to fill out the FAFSA. Um, but in fact, when folks are filling out the FAFSA in January. Uh, their taxes aren't done for the most part. Most people aren't getting their taxes done until April. So the timing is what complicates the FAFSA. The fact that people don't know the numbers off of their tax return yet, so what they have to do is estimate as best best they can, and it's just really complicated. And and who knows how to estimate, uh, you know, your adjusted gross income and your taxes paid. That's pretty tough to do. So Mm -hmm. that makes the FAFSA hard to complete. That whole estimation process is going away because, when they're looking back at prior, prior year, your income two years in the past, let's say you're filling out the FAFSA form now in October of, um, let's say you're starting college in 2017, filling out the FAFSA now October of 2016 based on your 2015 income, you had those taxes done back in April. Um, So you have the numbers right in front of you. Everybody will. You don't have to estimate anything. And, in fact, it's even easier than that. You don't even have to write down, you don't even have to transfer the numbers from your tax return onto your FAFSA form. You can press a button on the FAFSA, and it will import your income information right from the IRS database. Uh, But that only works when your taxes are done. So that's going to be the case with this new system moving forward. Everybody will be able to press that button and import their tax data so it just makes the FAFSA a whole lot easier uh, to fill out for everybody. Um, that's and then, enormously easier. Yeah, wow. yeah. It, so it's a really a great change. Also kind of aligning, the, making, moving the process, the timing up, I think that's going to be helpful so that the financial aid process is aligned with the kind of the rest of the admissions process. It takes kind of an element of the unknown out of the equation that can be really stressful for people. You know, they might hear that they've been accepted to a college in December, but currently, they're not going to hear about financial aid probably until March. Uh, now they've already got their heart set on that school, and then maybe the financial aid doesn't work out to what they hoped it would be. It gives people time now to, you know, to plan, to apply to some more schools if, if the financial aid doesn't work out, um, to you know, work, save some money. Uh, so it just uh, removes a big element of the unknown and allows people to, to prepare and, and actually make some good financial decisions.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. I'm guessing though that there's some downsides because usually there's there's uh, there's upsides, but usually there are downsides.
5: Yeah, and there are if I stretch. <laughs> but overall, this is a really good thing. I think the biggest downside is that so now financial aid is going to be based on your income two years in the past. A lot can happen in two years. Um, you know, people can lose their jobs. People can take pay cuts. Um, you know, lots of stuff can happen. So so that's the downside that kind of by default, your financial aid is going to be based on your income uh, a couple years in the past that may bear little resemblance to what your income is now. Um, there's always a way to deal with that. Uh, anytime you have kind of special financial circumstances, if your the numbers on the FAFSA don't tell the whole story for you, um, specifically the big one is if you've lost your job um, since this this prior, prior year income that that they're collecting. So that that income bears little resemblance to what your current income is. You can always write a letter to the financial aid offices at the colleges you're applying to uh, and ask them to consider your special circumstances, you know, document what your income now is uh, and ask them to take that into consideration. They don't have to, but they can. Um, So that's what I would recommend for anyone whose income changes a lot from the prior, prior year bring it up to the financial aid offices. You just have to take that initiative.
2: Okay. All right, so just so you know, we only have two minutes left, um, so I don't know how much you can wrap up, but is the FAFSA the only financial aid application that students have to complete?
5: In many cases, yes. Uh, About 3,700 of the about 4,000 colleges in the U.S. just use the FAFSA form, and that's all students have to do to apply for financial aid. There are, however about 300 private, co- almost entirely private college, a couple of big state flagship universities, but almost entirely all private colleges that use this extra form called the CSS Profile that's similar to the FAFSA, but it asks some extra questions, uh, some things that some, some private colleges want to know about your financial situation that, that aren't asked about on the FAFSA. Now, this is the big unknown um, in this whole changing financial aid world. The profile form and the, the college board are the folks who run um, the, the profile form as they do the SATs that you were just talking about. The profile folks have not said if they are going to follow suit along with the FAFSA and also move to collecting prior, prior year income. Um, so that's the big unknown. Um, And so, you know, it remains to be seen. Are the colleges that collect the profile still going to ask about the one-year prior income? So is this still going to be a complicated process at a lot of schools, even more complicated because now you're reporting different income on the FAFSA and the profile? I really hope that doesn't happen. I hope the profile uh, goes ahead and uh, follows suit with the FAFSA and moves to prior, prior year. Um, But we just don't know. There's big discussions going on at the College Board right now. Um, to try to determine that. And if folks stay in touch with College Coach, follow us on Facebook, and we will let folks know just as soon as we've heard um, from the College Board about what the profile is going to do.
2: Okay, that's great. And that's a great place to end. Thanks so much for that kind of final bit of recommendation for people, Shannon. Absolutely. Um, all right. And so thanks so much for, um, to Shannon and all my guests today. I wanted to let you know that we have a great lineup for next, next week's show that I want to tell you about. Um, Beth Heaton will be returning as your host and she will be reviewing, uh, what a student should do after submitting their early action or early decision applications and what a student should be doing who hasn't even started their college application process yet. Is it too late? Tune in to find out. Actually, you don't have to wait that long. I promise it's not too late. Although I do recommend getting started very soon. Um, last, Beth Heaton will be discussing with a college finance expert how, how applying early action or early decision affects financial aid or merit aid scholarships for those students who are admitted. And uh, last, just a reminder that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. So get in there and check out the archives. The last two weeks, our admissions experts have discussed the Stanford and University of Wisconsin supplements, the college application process for the B student, and public service loan forgiveness. There is a ton of great stuff in each of those segments. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Check us out.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In –